First John chapter one, verses one through four. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And you can be seated. Hey, good morning again. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if, you're, if you're new here in person or if you're tuning in uh, online for the first time, uh, my, my name is Chris. I'm the founding pastor uh, of this church, and uh, we're just glad that you uh, have chosen to be with us this morning. Um, if you brought a Bible or you have one with you, uh, and hopefully you do, uh, you can go ahead and turn to First John, as we just read, First John chapter 1. First John is one of the last uh, books of the Bible, um, so you'll find it right towards the end, and that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, so we're actually wrapping up our Advent series. Typically, we start the Advent series uh, or a Christmas series at the first Sunday of December, uh, and then we stretch on to uh, the the Sunday following Christmas. And, and the Advent season, as we've been uh, rehearsing and reminding ourselves, is a time where we remember the coming of Jesus, not just his first coming, but it's a time for us to look forward to his second coming. And the scripture that we're looking at this morning doesn't just describe the events surrounding Christmas. They don't tell us like what happened at Christmas, but they do tell us why it happened. All right. So in 1 John chapter 1, we're not going to look at like the, the wise men or the magi or anything like that. We're not looking at the events of Christmas, what happened, but we are going to look at why it happened. We're going to look at three short answers for the question, why did Christmas happen? Why did Jesus have to come? And we're going to find three answers from this single passage in 1 John. Number one, he came to offer the grace of eternal life. The grace of eternal life. You see, this whole idea of God coming down, of God entering into human history as a person of Jesus, as a baby in the manger, is all about grace. Grace is the greatest gift. It is amazing. That's why we sing amazing grace, right? And so it's all about grace. The story of Christmas is all about grace. I want you to read verse one with me which, where he says, that which was from the beginning. Now he's talking about Jesus here. That which was from the beginning. You see, Jesus is, was from the beginning. What he's saying here is that Jesus is the one who precedes all things. He's the eternal one. He's the one without beginning and without end. Before there was anything, there was Jesus. He's not just part of creation. He is the creator. Last week, we looked at another verse in the Bible that tells us uh, how all things were created by him. They were created through him and were created for him. Now, what's interesting about the first verses of 1 John is how, like, John doesn't seem to be talking about a person, does he? He says, 
that which was from the beginning, right? He doesn't say he who is from the beginning. He says that which was from the beginning. He doesn't say he whom we have heard about. He says that which we have heard. It's almost like he's talking about a concept, right? Rather than a person. That's what it sounds like. Like he's talking about something rather than someone. But then John keeps going and he says, That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. And so when you read that, the rest of the verse, you're like, well, how do you hear a concept or see it with your eyes or touch it with your hands? Like you can't do those things with a concept. You can only do those things with either an object or a person. And then at the end of verse 2, he says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. Eternal life is a concept. But then he says, that which was with the Father. And with that phrase, that which was with the Father, you realize, no, he's talking about a person here. This is obviously about a person. Now, why, why do I bring all that up? What's the point of that? It's because he's almost making this point with the way that he uses language, with the way that he's chosen his words. John is making this point that the concept of eternal life cannot be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. This concept of the word of life, this concept of eternal life cannot be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is eternal life. Eternal life can only be found in him. Without Jesus, you don't have eternal life. And with Jesus, you have the gracious offer of eternal life. And we need to start there if we want to make sense of why his grace is so amazing. Why the event of his birth in human form is so astounding. Jesus is God's word in flesh. Jesus is the word of life, the good news of grace embodied in flesh. You see, this is what sets him apart. What sets Jesus apart from every other religion founder or prophet? He's not pointing away from himself to some other body of truth or to some other being or to some other way. No, Jesus says himself in John 14, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He says, look, I don't just show you the way, I am the way. I don't just declare the truth, I am the truth. I don't, uh, I, I don't just give you eternal life, I am eternal life. Jesus doesn't just tell us how to get to God, he's God who has come down to us. And this is significant because there were people in the church around this time who were assumed to be Christians, but did not believe that Jesus was God did not believe that Jesus was eternal life. They believed that Jesus pointed to, uh, believed Jesus as someone who like maybe pointed to the truth, right? He pointed to uh, 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 the truth. He almost like existed uh, to make you, uh, to point you to a truth on how to be a better, happier version of yourself rather than being truth embodied as someone who changes everything about you uh, it, it, when you choose to follow him. You see, but John wants to make sure that people don't make that mistake. 
John wants to make sure that people aren't believing uh, what is historically being called like that, that heresy, that Jesus isn't God. By the way, here's a fun Christmas story. In the 4th century, there was a guy by the name of Arius who was teaching this heresy. He was teaching the heresy that Jesus wasn't God, but actually a created being who was made by God. And if you, if you know your church history, you know that uh, many le- leading theologians gathered at the Council of Nicaea to sort of settle the matter. Uh, they were, they, their idea was they were going to gather, all these church theologians were going to gather together. They were going to open up the scriptures, look at the apostles' writings, and settle this matter. Is, is Arius as dangerous as we think? His, him, when Arius was teaching that God was not, or that Jesus was not God, but a created being, is this as dangerous as we think? And so, and so they got together, and what many don't know is that there was a young saint by the name of Nicholas who traveled to Nicaea, and upon arriving, he walked straight up to Arius, was so disappointed in him and just slapped him right in the face. And this St. Nicholas was also known for his generosity. He used the inspiration for the Santa Claus legend. And so, in summary, we can say Santa slaps heretics, right? Santa slaps heretics. Deck the halls, how about deck the heretics, right? Don't mess with Santa is the moral of that story. Now, obviously, I'm not like, condoning what Santa did to Arius, but it's just kind of a, 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 a funny little bit of um, church history Christmas lore. Um, but this theological truth that Jesus is truly God, there really is a truth worth fighting for in some sense. It's a truth worth contending for. That Jesus as God is so key. You see, Christianity doesn't teach that Jesus is some great prophet pointing the way to God and showing us how to save ourselves. According to the Christmas story, Jesus is God who came down to save us, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Christianity is not a list of do these things and don't do those things. Christianity is the declaration. It's a proclamation. It's good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. It isn't about what we can do to work ourselves up to please God. It's about God being pleased to come down for us. That's key to our understanding of the Christmas story. Which really leads us to our second point. You know, Christmas happened really just to to offer the gift of himself, God offering the gift of himself to us. <clears throat> I want you to read a verse one and, and then verse two with me. It's talking about Jesus, the eternal one, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Here's what John is saying. He's saying this great God, Jesus, the one who made all things, the one who holds the key to life, John says, look, we've heard him. We've heard him speak. We've seen him with our own eyes. We've touched him with our very hands. I want you to think about what he's saying here, what John is saying here. He's saying that the one who created all things, John's saying we were with him. We were with the creator with Jesus. John is a man who heard Jesus speak 
at the Sermon on the Mount, he who saw Jesus die and rise three days later. He's the one who leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper. John walked with God for the last three days of Jesus' life. Now, why is this significant? It's significant for at least a couple of reasons. First, you got to recognize that Jesus made an impact with his life on earth, right? Everyone was talking about him because of his ministry, because of, of, of how he taught the miracles he performed. And there were lots of rumors going on because of that. People, there were rumors about who he was, why he went around, why his followers were so devoted to him. And John here, he's setting him apart from all the other rumor tellers. He's saying, look, I was there. I heard him. I touched him. I saw him. Do you guys know that there have been more books written about Jesus than anyone else in all of history? By a landslide. More books written about Jesus than anyone else. If you actually go to the Library of Congress, you'll see that there are so many books about him. And, and, and admittedly, these books about Jesus are all over the place in terms of what they say about him and who he was and stuff like that. But, but John is here to say, look, like, tr you can trust me because I've seen him. I'm an eyewitness. I've heard him. You see, back then... It wasn't, it wasn't uh, unsimilar to how it is now to where eyewitness testimonies are often the most reliable form of testimony, right? I don't know how many of you guys are into like crime dramas. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nut when it comes to crime dramas. Like I, I, lo I love shows like that, like Broad Church or like The Night Of and things like that. Uh, I love crime dramas. And, and you know that like when there's, there's no uh, eyewitness to a crime or when you have an eyewitness who maybe is not completely reliable, uh, then the, the case starts to dissolve away. John is saying, look, I was an eyewitness. I, I was there. I saw him. I touched him. The idea here is, is the Bible has a lot to tell us about who Jesus is, why he came, and the kind of life that he calls us to. And look, if you're not going to believe what the scriptures say about Jesus, who are you going to believe? about Jesus. Who are you going to believe? Is it your heart? Your own premonitions? Like the most spiritual people that you find ourselves around, you know, like what like, what 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 is what is their source? And if you don't believe the scriptures, then ask yourself, why do you believe those others? See what John is modeling for us here. There's a reason that we trust the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, built on eyewitness accounts. Secondly, this, this declaration by John that he has seen, heard, and touched Jesus, what John is saying here is, re, is reinforcing what we've already talked about, that Jesus was God in the flesh, in the fullest sense of that word. He was God in the flesh. He's not only divine He's human too. When you think about what's happening at the incarnation, God coming in the form of man 
in, a, through, in the form of a baby in the manger, when you think about what's happening in the Christmas story, what we call the incarnation, it should amaze you. The infinite God takes on a finite form. The extraordinary creator of the cosmos takes on the form of a creature. Unlimited greatness and power is buttoned up in a swaddle and stuffed in a manger. What in the world? We can't, we can't comprehend the magnitude of just how amazing and magical and supernatural this is. This is too humble for God is great like that. This is too ordinary for something so extraordinary. There's this, uh, there's this almost like spoken word, uh, it's kind of like spoken word, like rap sort of thing, that uh, song that, that, that I'm always reminded of every Christmas time. It's called The Incarnation. And I just love how poetically uh, he, he, he puts it. It's written uh, by a, uh, a guy named Thomas Terry. Um, Odd Thomas is his stage name. He actually serves as a pastor at Trinity Church in Portland. Uh, and he he started a record called, a record label called Humble Beast Records. Uh, he's he's part of a group called Beautiful Eulogy that you may have heard of. Um, but I, I I love the way that he just describes this supernatural event of the extraordinary God coming in an ordinary form. I want to read it for you. Uh, can you cue the music? I'm just kidding. There's no music, but <laughs> I'm just going to read it to you. All right. He says, see, Christmas is more than just a story of a baby born in a manger, more than a poor fiance engaged to a humble virgin teenager, more than a magi, more than gold, more than frankincense and myrrh. It's more than a narrative of a nativity scene. It was so much more that occurred. It is the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, the prophecy of the suffering servant and all of his accomplishments. The second person of the Trinity commissioned to abandon his position and literally set aside the independent exercise of his attributes in full submission. The Word, that's capital W Word, manifested in the flesh. The fullness of God expressed. The self-emptying Jesus poured out at the Father's request. The image of the invisible God, the radiance of the Father's fame, holy, but retained His humanness to empathize with our pain. He was unjustly crushed, chastised, cursed, and shamed, mocked and adorned with the crown of thorns, disgraced, but he still faced the grave to fulfill the Father's will, to come and die in the place of sinful men and receive the full fury of God's judgment upon him instead. The most monumental mark for mankind made in human history, wretched sinners being made righteous only by the wounds of the risen King, the condescending of a holy God made in the likeness of men, a child born to be the Savior that would save the world from their sins. 
the offspring of a virgin's womb, the Christ, God's own Son, fully God yet fully man, the only theanthropic one. This is what we celebrate, Christ the newborn King, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Amen. It's beautiful what's happened in the Christmas story. Jesus is the one who is God. He's the one whose name is above all other names. We call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one who lacks nothing, fully sufficient in and of himself, supremely unique and supremely holy. The Bible says that demons tremble at his name and his presence makes the angels sing. He's perfect in every single one of his attributes. He is God, and because Jesus is God, he could not die. The second person of the Trinity could not die before the incarnation. And death is the just penalty for sin. Our sin, Adam's sin, our sinful nature demanded a righteous payment. But the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, unless Jesus came, unless the Christmas story, unless the incarnation. And so, as the Bible tells us, Jesus emptied himself of all prestige, of a powerful position, of all privilege. He put on flesh and bone so that he could take on pain and human suffering. And he did that so that we could be reconciled with God, so that we could once again live the good life that we were originally created for. You see, that is an act of God's amazing grace in Jesus. In verse 3, John says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, that's the grace of God coming near to us. If you're confused and wondering if Jesus is God or man, the answer is yes, is it's both. He's 100% God and 100% man. The math doesn't have to add up because He's just the unique God-man. It's okay if that's hard to wrap your mind around mentally. It's supposed to be because it brings us to wonder. It brings us to awe. The grace of God came down to be with us in Jesus. And it's so significant because this is the only way that we, we could ever have a relationship with a God as great and holy as He is. I think I've told this story a couple times before, but in the 1960s, the first man uh, was sent to, into space. And uh, uh, a, a, a politician reported that when this cosmonaut, he's a Russian cosmonaut, when he got to space, uh, he re- this, this cosmonaut uh, remarked that he didn't see God up there, and so therefore, there must not be a God, right? Uh, and so C.S. Lewis wrote an article in response, and Lewis said, look, if there's a God who made us, who was there before the beginning, then we wouldn't be able to discover him just by going up, right? 
God wouldn't relate to humans the way a man on the second floor would relate to a man on the first floor. He would relate to us in the way that Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare created Hamlet and the world that he lives in, and so the only way that Hamlet could ever know the author of his own stories is if Shakespeare revealed himself somehow to Hamlet in the very play that he existed in. And in a way, God has done that for us through inspiring and preserving his word. Right? That's what the Bible is to us. It's God revealing himself to us in the story that he's made. And we're all characters. But the story of Christmas, in the story of Christmas, God does even better than that. At Christmas, God didn't just write some information about himself. He actually wrote himself into the play. He wrote himself into the story of the world. He came into our world in the person of Jesus to live for us, to die for us, and to rise for us. And it leads us to our final concluding point. Christmas happened so that God could invite us into his family. To invite us into his family. Look at the beginning of verse 3 with me. It says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. John's saying, look, all that we've seen, all that me and the other disciples, all that we've seen and proclaimed, we're sharing this good news to you so that you can have fellowship with us. In other words, so that you can know Jesus personally the way that I do. John says the reason he's writing about the power of the Christmas story is so that other people can get in on the grace that he's enjoying. He's so stoked on the goodness of God's grace that he wants everyone to get in on it. He says, I'm doing all this, I'm writing this, I'm telling you this, proclaiming this so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now we need to understand this word fellowship because like what what do you think of when when you hear that word fellowship? You probably think of two things, right? You either think of like... um, some, some abstract uh, sort of like when people gather, right? And, and almost like, uh, like Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> like you're thinking fellowship of the rings. Or maybe when you hear the word fellowship, if you grew up in the church, you think of some like kind of church gathering event, right? That word kind of gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles. Like, what are you doing tonight? Oh, you know, I'm just going to have fellowship with these brothers and sisters. Or thanks for hanging out after the service for fellowship. But fellowship, it's kind of overused in Christian circles, and we can run the risk of missing the meaning behind the word. It's important and it's powerful. First John was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia literally means to be sharing in common. That's where we get our word community from, having a common unity. You know what that tells us? It tells us that community is never really just about community. Community and fellowship is is more about what binds that community and holds it together. And so if you go to like a sports event, Remember those? (laughs) But if you went to a sports event, there's some sense of community, right? You've got a stadium full of people of all shapes, sizes, ages, genders, colors, not just because they enjoy each other and like hanging out together, but because they share a common devotion for the same team or the same sport. If you go to a birthday party, 
It's the celebrant that brings different people together, a common love uh, for this person, a common desire to celebrate them. Now, for the church, for the Christian community, what is it that we have in common? What is it that holds us together? What is our unifying power? The Bible tells us it's our shared salvation in our Lord Jesus. You see, if you're a Christian or disciple of Jesus this morning, you recognize that we all have the same Savior. We worship the same King. We worship the King who went to the cross. And now we're a family. We're a family together. Doesn't matter your denominational background, doesn't matter your faith background, doesn't matter your class or social status or, or what have you. In Jesus, we're family. First Peter says it like this. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then that is the most important thing about you. You are part of the people of God. Man, we need to get that. We need to understand how the Christmas story, it changes everything about us. Sometimes the way that we treat Christmas, we're like, man, like Christmas sets us apart in like the kind of gifts that we give each other, right? Like, like I want to, uh, we, we make it so consumeristic where it's like we want to we wanna outgive other people or we want to make sure that the gifts we give or the gifts that we receive are going to set us apart from others, right? Like uh, according to our class or, or what have you, um, or our appearance or our social status. But the most important thing about us, if you're a follower of Jesus, has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the fact that you are part of the people of God. You see, the most important thing about me is not that I'm a pastor. It's not that I'm a father. It's not that I'm a husband, a son, a brother, a friend, a neighbor. It's not that those things are unimportant. They're just not the most important thing about me. The most important thing about me isn't what I do for a living or what I, who I you know, hang out with and talk to. The most important thing about me is that I'm not my own, but I've been bought by the blood of Jesus, adopted into his family. And that is the story of every follower of Jesus. It is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about any of us is what we believe about who God is, namely about who Jesus is and who you are in relation to that. So don't miss that. Don't miss that truth. Jesus told his disciples over and over again, he tells them, you're a city set on a hill. You're a flock with a shepherd. You're a royal priesthood. In case you didn't know, you can't be any of those things by yourself. That's why we need community. We need the church. We need each other. Jesus came to earth to create a new community, a spiritual family set apart by him for his purposes. Jesus was on a mission to grow his family. He lived the life that we could never live, a righteous life, so that he could die the death that we all deserve to die in our place. And he rose from the grave in triumphant victory over Satan's sin and death. 
And he invites us to get in on all the benefits of that by grace through faith. That is why Jesus came. He came to make a family out of sinners like me and like you. He charged his closest group of friends with what's been called the Great Commission to carry that gospel forward. After Jesus rose from the grave, he met with his disciples and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That mission was John's joy. Read verse four with me. He says, we are writing these things. John says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You want to know what brought John joy? When people's joy were made complete, when they became disciples in Jesus. When disciples are made, when people come to know the grace of Jesus, when they draw near to him, get plugged into a local church, and then join the household of God. Disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. That was John's joy. And look, church family, that's our joy too. That's our joy too. He calls this type of joy complete joy. It's not a temporary joy. It's a lasting joy. It's an enduring joy. Let me ask you this morning, do you enjoy his grace? Do you enjoy his people, enjoy his community? Do you understand that this is all, this whole gospel thing, this whole church thing, that this is all so that your joy may be complete? And look, this is the reason that we're doing this. This is the reason that we're doing this as King's Cross Church. The reason that we are, we planted this church, the reason that we're making disciples, the reason that we're trying to reach people that, that, that other churches uh, aren't because we need all kinds of different churches of shapes and sizes and it's to reach different people. The reason that we're doing all of this is for our joy, for your joy and for the joy of others. We want to see more and more people encounter the grace of the gospel of Jesus. We want to see more and more people encounter the community of Jesus in the church. All for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors through our shared joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.